Let's pray as we look at this portion of God's word together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you have given us uh, to dig deep in your word, uh, to be confronted by issues that may have been unsettling, and to be indeed confronted by you in your word regarding life itself. Please, Father, so cut us to the heart this night by your word, our souls, our marrow, our very inner beings, so that our lives will indeed be changed for eternity and indeed for your glory. And we do beg this for Jesus' most precious sake. Amen. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. They are the words of the Apostle Paul from, if you want to write down the reference, it's Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. The Apostle Paul basically says that life was not worth living for him unless he had the privilege and opportunity to testify to the gospel. What is it that possesses the Apostle Paul to say these words? He is so, so convicted by this thought that he lived the lifestyle that others would describe as mad. If you were to read 2 Corinthians 11, we learn that in his life he had suffering, he had trials, he was in prison, he was in shipwrecks, he was stoned. That's with rocks, not with other things. There were frequent journeys in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from his own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the country, in danger in the wilderness, in danger... Do you get the impression he was in danger? That is an exact quote from 2 Corinthians 11. There was hunger, there was thirst, there was cold, there was exposure, there was a daily pressure of his anxiety from all the churches. It was the lifestyle of a mad person. So much so that when he was confronting the governor Festus about his conviction to share the gospel, Festus said to him in Acts 26, You are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you insane. He lived the lifestyle of a mad person in the eyes of the world because he wanted to to proclaim the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, what is it about this gospel that compels Paul to live a lifestyle like that? My fear is that unlike the Apostle Paul, when we remind ourselves of what the gospel is, it doesn't stir us like that. It doesn't convict us like that because it's dangerously too familiar. Now so far, we've learnt about the anticipated gospel on Monday night, the anticipated news that God reigns as king to bless all the nations through Abraham by intervening decisively through the Son of Man to judge his enemies and save his people. I've got a little diagram there in your outline and you'll see that 
uh, circle with an arrow, the anticipated gospel where we looked at Genesis 12 and Daniel 7. We also looked last night at the gospel of Jesus, which was God's simple, sensational announcement couriered by beautiful feet from heaven in Jesus himself, that the time had come, that it was time, time to establish his kingdom on earth as the Son of Man through his death, resurrection, to save his people. The gospel of Jesus was news of the event involving his life, death and resurrection. And tonight, we're going to look at the apostolic gospel, the gospel that the apostles preached, the gospel that you will find in well, the, the letters of the New Testament, what we call the epistles, whereas the life event, the gospel of Jesus, is found in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. The apostolic gospel is the same gospel that Jesus brought, but it's different. You're going to think, what? How can there be apostolic gospel be different from the gospel of Jesus? It's different because it has developed to a new stage. Because the kingdom it announces has reached a new stage. Let me illustrate. In World War II, when the Allies invaded Europe in 1944, there was an anticipated gospel. In other words, there was an anticipation of news, right? Gospel just means news, sensational news. But it was anticipated because they kept on telling the people in Europe, we're going to invade. We're going to rescue you from the Nazis. So they had letters being dropped from planes and there was radio announcements. So it was anticipated. The news was anticipated. But on the 6th of June in 1944, the Allied flag was planted on enemy territory when troops poured up the beaches of Normandy and the enemy strongholds fell and radios crackled announcing liberty and called on the enemy to lay down their weapons. It was the actual inv invasion, right? There was the announcement that they were going to come and then they came. That makes sense? That's like Jesus's gospel. Jesus flies the flag of his kingdom as he preaches with authority, as he feeds the hungry, as he heals the sick, as he casts out demons, as he raises the dead. And of course, supremely, as he dies the death that you and I deserve and rises that we might have life. For at his cross, Satan is irreversibly defeated and the place of humanity in God's kingdom is secured and a hole is punched into the wall of death because he himself conquers death. See, that's the gospel of Jesus. It's, it's the event itself. There's the anticipation and there's the event itself. As far as World War II is concerned, Europe now belongs to the Allies. The decisive battle has been fought and the war has been won. However, the war is won, but the war is not exactly finished because the gospel of the kingdom of the allied powers, so to speak, must be carried out to every city, every tribe, every language and every nation because not all of them know about that. Do you know, there are stories of people who kind of just trekked around for a little while for years after the allies invaded and won the war because they hadn't heard the news that the allies had won. They kept on living as if the war was still being fought. They need to hear the news, you see. That's as it were, the same thing as the apostolic gospel. 
Now, to use a slightly more trivial illustration, uh, your president, Johnny Han, and I uh, counted up at one point in conversation that we think there are about seven or eight couples that have got engaged in recent times. Now, if you are a student who has recently got engaged, can you stand up where you are? Go on, go on. Yes, yes. Okay, hands up if you did not know any of these people were engaged or one of them was engaged. Just, just hands up if you didn't know. Okay, yeah, one, two, three, yeah, four. Okay, oh, four. Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. You four are the pagans. You didn't know the news. This news has been all over social media. <laughs> How can you not know? You're the hamlets, the villages, the people out there who still don't know. You're living as if these guys are not engaged. <laughs> but they're engaged. How could you not know? Do you see, that's the kind of thing that's on here with the apostolic gospel. It's not the outcome of the war and the existence of the new government which is at stake at one level, but each person to whom the gospel comes. Now is the time for the apostolic gospel to be proclaimed to all the world. There are people who don't know. Villages, tribes, languages, nations, thousands and thousands of ethnicities who have not heard that they need to surrender to the one who is the Son of Man, the Son of God, do you see? They get to hear the apostolic gospel, that it's reached this new point, as it were. Will they surrender, or will they destroy themselves in senseless and futile opposition? Well, for the sake of clarity, then, we're going to hang out in what is perhaps Paul's best explanation of the apostolic gospel in the book of Romans. So put your seatbelts on. This is going to be fast and furious. A man named Martin Luther described Romans as the chief part of the New Testament, the purest gospel. Martin Luther was the guy that you saw that video with John O'Mills outside. It was the castle door of Wittenberg. The door actually wasn't there. It was off being renovated somewhere else, but it still looked good, didn't it? You know, that, that's what was going on, as I understand it. But Martin Luther was one of these guys who discovered the gospel from reading Romans for himself. John Calvin, another great reformer, someone who understood the gospel with clarity from the scriptures, said, if we have gained a true understanding of this epistle this letter we have an open door to all the most profound treasures of scripture but its impact is not confined rather to such giants in church history i'm sure that it's going to affect you and me as well tonight so as we begin in romans chapter one let's have a look at what grips the apostle paul we're just going to hang out in Romans and work through the first three chapters ever so superficially, really. But chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for 
the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now it goes on and on, but for all its theological complexity, this letter is driven by one simple and straightforward thing. Paul loves the gospel. He loves the gospel. He can't finish his first sentence without getting distracted by the gospel. The letter proper doesn't actually start till verse 8. In other letters, in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Thessalonians, he simply writes, Paul, an apostle, to the church in, wherever it was, and it's in two verses. It's kind of over and done with him, into the letter. But here in Romans, an introduction that should have taken only two verses spills into seven verses, and it's all filled with things about the gospel. But according to Paul, what is the gospel? What is the sensational news, the momentous news that we should be most aware of? Well, at one level, there's nothing new. According to verse 2, he promised it beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That was the anticipated gospel from Monday night. It's, it's there all along in the Holy Scriptures, in the Old Testament as we know it. But we know it's all about God's Son, verse 3, concerning his Son, whose descent is from King David, and him being declared to be the Son of God, by his resurrection from the dead. It's not exactly how you and I would have explained the gospel if we'd started afresh. What's the gospel? Well, Jesus descended from the son of, uh, from, uh, from David, from King David. Was that the way you would explain the gospel? When we talk about Jesus is better because he descended from David. Is that what you're going to say when you go around? You probably wouldn't do that, would you? Because you need all this assumed knowledge. And that's understandable. But Paul understands that these guys do have this assumed knowledge. But we may not have this assumed knowledge, so let me share some of that with you. Now, God made promises, and I think you covered some of this in the seminar, but let's go over it just a little bit. God promised King David in the Old Testament. In You can write this down, but we won't have time to look at it. King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You can write that reference down, 2 Samuel chapter 7. He promised King David... That every king, basically, who sat on David's throne thereafter, in other words, from the line of David, every king who sat on the throne of King David would become the son of God. Right? I think you covered some of this already. Is that right? Son of God, in other words, is a title. It's a title used of every king who comes from the line of David. So therefore, well, you tell me, who are the kings who come in the line of King David? Just give me any name. Solomon is the first king because he's the son of David. He's the son of God. Right? He gets the title son of God. Isn't that incredible? Solomon. And Solomon was wonderful. In fact, for a weekend, you would have thought Abraham's promises were all fulfilled. The, the, the offspring are there in numerous number, and they're in the land, and they are being blessed in every way except for the fact that Solomon ends up doing a silly thing. He marries 700 women <laughs> and 300 concubines. You know what a concubine is? It's a wife you have when you're not having a wife kind of wife. Right? It's a Clayton's wife, as they say. Right? He has 300 of those. The guy is just 
mad, really. It's just very, very foolish. But if you're a son of Solomon, you might be thinking on the street, thinking, yeah, I'm a son of a son of God, man, you know? To which others would say, well, so am I, so am I, so am I, because he's had 700 wives, all these children around about him, right? I'm a big deal. But he's got it all wrong, isn't he? He's just hopeless in the end, so he fails. And then, well, other, go- uh, other gods, other sons of God, other kings, who else is there? Hezekiah. He's not bad for a little while, but then he stuffed it as well. Jotham. Yeah, he's not great either, but there you go. Yeah, Jehoiachin. Now, he's the best of all, isn't he? Jehoiachin, yeah. Chinese king. Uh, China, China, China. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, Sarami. I need to hear this. There's a Korean one as well. Yeah. Jehoiakim. <laughs> yeah. But Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin are pretty bad, really, so don't, don't go for them. But they're still sons of God. They're still sons of God. They have the title son of God, even though they're failures. So someone comes along who succeeds where these ones fail. And he is God the Son, which is not the same as the Son of God. The Son of God is the title, but who better to take on the title than God the Son, the person of Jesus? And so he's declared to be the son of God in the line of David by his resurrection. Thus, in this sense, you see, the summary statement that really captures the gospel, the the newsflash, is that Jesus is Lord. So in verse 4, as it says, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. At the heart of this gospel message, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is the idea of God's reign, God's rule as king, that is his kingdom. That's why Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So whenever we Christians use the word gospel, we've got to say, or think at least, the gospel of the Lord Jesus. If we just use the word gospel, it's just this is news that everybody needs to hear, like you know, someone's engaged or something like that, and get a respectable number of likes and a respectable number of comments and comparison games might be played along this. But that's not what it's about, is it? it? The gospel of the Lord Jesus is what's on view. So let's talk about the gospel of Jesus when we use the word gospel. So whenever we use that language, it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus. It's about his rule, his reign, his kingship. The announcement that God's rule in Jesus is really a command to submit to his rule. The focus of the gospel is Jesus and not us. It's about his lordship. To use the language of John Piper, we've got to speak about the supremacy of Jesus. That he reigns supreme over every star and every galaxy over the earth from the top of Mount Everest to the bottom of the Pacific Ocean in the Mariana Trench. He rules over the weather, all rains and drought, all movements of the earth, of cyclones and earthquakes, all chemical processes, biochemistry in our bodies, viruses, bacteria, antibiotics. He rules over every government and every tribe and every language and every nation. As one person put it, there is not one square inch on planet Earth over which the risen Christ does not say, Mine! It belongs to me! The gospel that declares Jesus is Lord is for the whole world. 
So how are we to respond to this gospel of the Lord Jesus? Verse 5, verse 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. The obedience of faith is the response. It's obedience as we trust Jesus as Lord. And please note a crucial difference here, and I've put it in your outline. It's the gospel versus its fruit. The gospel is the announcement that Jesus is Lord because of his death and resurrection. which calls on people to submit to him. But our obedience, our obedient submission to him is the response. It's not part of the gospel. It's our response to the gospel. It is the fruit of the gospel. As we seek to live for him by grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions that Owen was talking about before, that's the fruit. The message is about Jesus. Put another way, the gospel, the message, creates a life of love, but the life of love is not the gospel. You've got to be really clear about that, crystal clear about that, because if we mix the two, we end up not preaching the proper gospel. And that's where things like social justice come into play. That's where things like trying to correct injustices come into play. The message of Jesus is about his lordship. But when I seek to do right in society, when I seek to obey him, when I seek to say no to ungodliness, say no to pornography, say no to envy, to say no to selfishness, and to seek to do what is right or build hospitals or dig wells or do right by society, well, that's fruit. But it's not the gospel. The gospel is the message. Why am I laboring on about that? Because I've been to so many international conferences now in which it's just so blurred. And in the end, I think there are movements that have lost the gospel in the process. But Richard, are you saying that these things are unimportant, like social justice? Not at all. I'm saying it's vitally important. I'm just saying it's not the gospel. You know, when, when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? What does he say? Do you recall? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. Is that the gospel? Hands up if you think it's the gospel. Hands up if you think it's not. Oh, I won't, I won't, I won't. It's not the gospel. It's the greatest commandment. But it's not the gospel. The gospel is the message about Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, saving his people, calling on people to submit. The life of love is the fruit of the gospel. It's the greatest commandment. That's how important it is, yeah? See, I'm not trying to belittle it. I'm not trying to dilute it. It's that important. It's as important as someone being faithful to their spouse in marriage. That's how important it is. Social justice even, yeah? When, when someone makes a promise and those who have just stood up and I will soon make promises to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, forsaking all others until 
we are parted by death or as long as we both shall live or until Jesus returns. Keeping that promise is the fruit of the gospel. Even though it's big. But it's not the gospel, you see. I'm laboring it and laboring it and laboring it because the power of the gospel is not in the fruit but in the message. But just before we get there, please note that as we express the obedience of faith, why do we do so anyway? Come back to verse 5 again. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. The reason we obey is for the sake of his reputation, not ours. It's so that he gets the glory, not me. So that if we actually do godly things, then in the end Jesus gets all the credit, not me, not you. So when we do wonderful, wonderful things, it's for the glory of God. It's for his name's sake. But to come back to the power, that's why we read in verse 16 of Romans chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. See, Paul was not ashamed of the gospel because it really was powerful. The message was powerful, not the fruit, the message. The, me the, the, the fruit adorns the message, but the message is what saves people. Right? It has the power to rip us out of the jaws of hell into the kingdom of the son that he loves. And it has the power to transform us for eternity through the obedience of faith. But to the Greeks, it says, you know, first for the Jew, then to the Greek. If you have an NIV, it might say Gentile, but the word is actually Greek. And that's important because, you see, the Greeks were such an impressive people and they thought that the message of Jesus was rather unimpressive, which is why it was tempting for Paul to be ashamed. But he says, I'm not ashamed. The Greeks were the reigning culture of the day. Do you remember when we looked at the book of Daniel? There was that statue with the head of gold. That was Babylon. Then there were the Medes and the Persians. Then there were the Greeks. And the Greeks were ever so sophisticated, powerful. The Greeks of the first century were wise and supreme. They're not like my Greek friends in Australia. And they love to take the mickey out of themselves. And now they go around saying, Hey, how's you going, Richard? You know, I've got daughters, is Dula, Ula, Bula, Dula, and Agape. You know, and they just tease themselves all the time. They said, Do you want to wax my back? You know? And then they're going, that's, it's not, that's not that kind of Greek culture. Yeah? <laughs> These are the sophisticated ones. These are the center of Greek civilization. And Rome was the symbol of imperial pride and power. People spoke of it with awe, and everybody hoped to visit Rome at least once in their lifetime in order to just stare at the wonders of Rome. And thus the voice of the Greeks was to be feared and obeyed. So when the first Christians proclaimed the gospel of Jesus, they weren't copying the gospel of the Roman emperors. Rather, they were exposing the Roman emperors as a fraud. The Roman emperors weren't the, the rulers of the world. Jesus is the ruler of the world. And so Jesus was to be proclaimed. And Paul says he was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus because it is the power of God to save. And he was so thankful for the faith of the Roman Christians in response to the gospel, yet he was still eager to preach the gospel to the Romans, both to the Christians and to the non-Christians. 
to both and please note the gospel is not just for non-christians the gospel is for us and we've got to keep preaching it to ourselves we've got to keep speaking to one another it's just got to be natural speech that jesus is lord that he is amazing that he is wonderful that he is the one who is in control of all things it should be so natural to us and it should be such such happiness when we share with each other how it is that we became jesus's people and i hope that is the case for you as well because one of the groups that are oh, maybe i'll share that tomorrow night but there's a group of people in dubai in which they always ask each other how is it that you become a christian and they share that with great joy all the time they want to find out and i hope that you will do likewise i gave you the homework on monday night i don't know if you did your homework but did you ask someone else how they became a christian before that between now and then then now i hope you did but if you haven't repent right <laughs> ask someone tonight how did you become a christian it may be that you're not a Christian, then just share, how did you find out about Jesus? Take it from there. Why is this gospel so powerful to save? Verse 17, though. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This righteousness of God is revealed in this sensational news of Jesus. The word righteousness means to be in line with God's moral and legal standards. To be in line with God's moral and legal standards as creator and judge. So in the gospel of Jesus, God's moral and legal standards as creator and judge is being revealed. And it all involves faith. It all involves trust. It is revealed from faith for faith. It all involves God's faithfulness and our faith in his faithfulness. From faith for faith. From God's faithfulness to our faith, our trust in his faithfulness. I think that's what's on view you see in paul's day the greeks were like the babylonians they were proud they were arrogant they were puffed up and the message of the gospel seemed so meek and powerless in the face of the roman world but paul was not ashamed of the gospel because it was the very power of god to bring these things about the salvation that is seen and the righteousness that is revealed from faith for faith and more of that as we look through the book of romans later on but as we trace through the argument, we need to see how God punishes evildoers in a way that is just unbelievable, even though it's in line with his moral standards. It's righteous. And it's there in verse 18 of Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed. Right? The righteousness of God is revealed, but the wrath of God is revealed, verse 18, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. He's saying that from creation, people know deep down inside that there is a creator. 
Deep down inside, everyone knows that God has eternal power and divine nature from the creation itself. In the boot camp that all of you should go on one day, we get to run past this, the cows, and see the clouds come up. And as we run past the cows, we think, there's a creator. As we run through the clouds that we see in the side, there's a creator. Why do we think that? Because we know that there is something in the substructure that just cries out that someone has designed it, made it. Do you know, there's, there's this thing called the anthropic principle. Anthropos is the Greek word for humanity, man, and something about the humanity principle, the anthropic principle, in which the physical structure of the universe is exactly what it must be to support life on this tiny earth. You know, if we were meters closer to the sun, all our water would boil away and humanity would basically die in an instant. If we were meters further from the sun, we would freeze over and die. Just, just a matter of one meter. Everything's been designed to, to support life as we know it. The chemical reactions necessary for life must occur within a narrow range of temperature and our earth is exactly the right distance from the sun to create this. Fancy that. That's just incredible, isn't it? If the universe appears to be tailor-made for life, the most straightforward conclusion is that it was tailor-made for life by a creator. And deep down inside, we all kind of get this. Even the atheists somehow... When they're at their end's width, they, they, they pray. Even in neighbours, they pray. There's a house burning down somewhere and then suddenly they're all praying in the bathroom. But we suppress this truth by adopting complex theories of multiple universes or just suppressing the idea that there is a God because we follow other gods instead. So we read in verse 21, verse 21 of Romans 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Oh, in Paul's day, they followed images of people or animals or as idols, but today we do follow those kinds of idols, but in other parts of the world. In fact, I remember going to, in fact, if you know KL or Kuala Lumpur, there's a, there are these caves that you can go to, these Hindu temples and these huge statues everywhere. And I remember going to one called the Batu Caves. Who's, who's been there? Yeah, okay, at least one. The engaged man up the front here. And, and there are these, these monkeys going around everywhere, and they treat the monkeys with far more divine status than the human tourists are going through. It's unbelievable. But we in the West, we think, oh, that's silly, but we have our own idols. It's called Westfield. <laughs> We're just in there all the time, buying stuff. But there are other idols as well, aren't there? Rationality, science, relationships. So what does God do to reveal his righteous anger in line with his standards? 
I just I just couldn't believe. But that's that's what I, I wanted people murdered because of the way they treated me. I still remember even as a a young father, uh, I couldn't get to sleep because my oldest child, who was only one at the time, just couldn't stop crying in the middle of the night. And so I remember just grabbing her and just throwing her down. I just thought, my, and not on the floor, don't worry. And she's highly intelligent and all the rest of it. But I just remember throwing it down thinking, and then I just, just caught myself thinking, my goodness, I'm just so capable of that. That was just out of tiredness. The only reason we don't sin anymore is because we have lack of opportunity. And I'm guessing that because I know my heart. And unless we deal with our pride, we really cannot comprehend the power of the gospel. We just cannot comprehend it. And please note, there will be a day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He says there in verse 5 of chapter 2, go to chapter 2 in verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Oh, God will act rightly as creator and judge in line with his righteousness. For only God is knowledgeable and wise enough to get it right. Only God is powerful enough to enforce it, unlike the so-called coalition forces in the Middle East at the moment. Only God will judge with absolute equity and get, get it absolutely right. And this judgment will be universally public on that day. It will be revealed to all and sundry on that day. But what is the basis of God's judgment? What is the basis? Chapter 2, verse 16. Come down to verse 16 of chapter 2. See, it's a hop, skip and jump through the book of Romans. Verse 16, he says, On that day, that day of judgment, According to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. By Christ Jesus. That is to say, what makes this news good, if it is good news, depends on whether you'll be saved from his anger or not. The word is primarily news, and depending on whether you're on the receiving end of judgment or not, it's good or not. The primary aspect is news. God will judge the secrets of our hearts. That's a bit of a scary thought, isn't it? Do you, like me, have secrets that you really don't want anyone else to know? Do you, like me, have secrets that you really don't even want God to know? Yet I wonder how you feel about the fact that God does know everything about you. Your inner thoughts, your conscience. I don't know your past any more than you know mine, but God knows everything. <coughs> Absolutely everything. And that's why there's no place for us to pass judgment on anyone else. That's why if you go back to verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, O person, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Oh, every time you point a finger at someone else, there's three fingers pointing back at you, isn't there? You 
and I are just hypocritical. Oh, we may not be corrupt, but I wonder how many of us secretly want to be corrupt when it comes to our tax forms if we need to fill them in. Oh, we may not be evil like sex traffickers, but I wonder how many of us secretly are enslaved to pornography, male or female. So easy to condemn others because of our own principles of right and wrong, but we can be so blind to those principles in our own hearts. Just jot this reference down, Psalm 36, verse 2. Do you just jot it down? And it basically says this, For in his own eyes, right, we in our own eyes, in his own eyes, he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. We just flatter ourselves. We don't think that we're evil. We can't think of ourselves as evil. We're just so blind to our own evil. Like so much of the world, we become unconscious of our own sins. We can't detect it, let alone hate it in ourselves. But we can always sniff it out in others a mile away. But like everyone else, we too deserve judgment. The basis of judgment is knowing the secrets of our hearts. But here's the other basis that we learn in verse 6 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 6. He, God, will render to each one according to his works. God will judge each person according to what they have done. That's right, isn't it? That's fair. That's just. What do you expect God to judge us on? According to our race? Well, if that was the case, the Chinese would win all the time, wouldn't they? Because there's so many of us. But it's not that. No, he's not going to judge us according to our race. He's going to judge us according to our jobs. Judge for being a lawyer. That's tempting, but I won't say any more there. He's going to judge us according to our theology. That we've got it right in terms of our theology. Well, possessing good theology is certainly important, but it's doing good theology that's more important. I know many ministry colleagues, very sadly, who had right theology, but they've now given up on the faith and it may be that you're here and you know your bibles really really well you know all the answers in the seminars and you got it all wrapped up with the manuscript discovery and you don't need to ask questions because you know lots and lots of bible already but the question is are you obeying it are you doing it we're going to be judged according to what we have done that's the basis of judgment you see that's fair that's right god will judge each person according to what we've done so here's the real situation then the real situation in your outlines is where we're up to chapter 3 verse 10 chapter 3 verse 10 as it is written None is righteous. No, not one. Verse 11 of chapter 3. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Not one. We've all, all, all rebelled against God. Every single one of us has rebelled against God. None of us can ever claim to be good, not one. You or me or Mother Teresa or the Archbishop of any denomination or even the Pope. There is no one who does good, not even one. 
being re- religious doesn't protect us. Being good doesn't protect us because we can never be good enough. We can never reach God's righteous standards. We all deserve God's right condemnation according to the law. It's a serious matter. In short, we deserve to go to hell. And I wonder whether you need to confess your sins to God like I do. And given the weight of what we've heard in the book of Romans to this point, I just want to give you a moment of silence now to just confess to God what you know is not pleasing to him. Let's do that right now, just for a few moments. Our Father in heaven, you've heard our confessions. We know the answer is the gospel of Jesus. And we beg for your forgiveness. Amen. We know the answer is Jesus. And we're going to see how it is in the rest of Romans. But before we do, we're going to sing about it first. Let's stand and sing together before the throne of God above. It's a great song, isn't it? A song that really picks up so many of the themes that we're going to look at right now. And as we follow the logic of the book of Romans so far, he's declared that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. But we've now learnt that all of us deserve his condemnation, that none of us is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But please pick it up, chapter 3, verse 19 now. Chapter 3, verse 19 of the book of Romans. It says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That is, to this point with the Old Testament, what we have is the law that continually tells us that we cannot get to heaven on our own. That we deserve his condemnation. That all it does is shut us up because we cannot, cannot come before God in our own defense by doing anything that is righteous on our own merit. But now, verse 21. But now. 
as we come to this text of Romans before us, we will engage with one person has described as possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. Arguably, we're going to come to what someone has described as the, the entire cornerstone of the entire New Testament. Arguably, that's the case. Because it's all about God's righteousness. It's all about how God deals with those of us who are fairly condemned according to his perfect standards. But now, verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. This righteousness of God, which we were introduced to in Romans 1 verse 17, has been revealed apart from the law. Remember, under the law, God's righteousness rightly damns us. But there is a righteousness apart from the law. Unless we think this sounds a bit shady, kind of tucking under the carpet, please note that the law and the prophets spoke about it all along. The anticipated gospel spoke about it all along. It's not something new. And it's all got to do with, surprise, surprise, Jesus. But it's about his faithfulness. Chapter 3, verse 22. Chapter 3, verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That actually is the faithfulness of Jesus that is especially on view. It's the faithfulness of Jesus. That is, firstly, God's righteousness, his right standards as creator and judge, are seen in how Jesus faithfully lived his life because Jesus never ever sinned and Jesus always always obeyed the law and Jesus never lusted in his heart and Jesus never lied and Jesus never murdered in his heart and Jesus was and is always faithful and he alone met God's perfect standards it's all about the faithfulness of Jesus and his faithfulness is for all who believe it's for all who trust him when Jesus did what Jesus did in his life is what we can trust in to somehow meet God's perfect standards it's his real justice for us it's for all who believe and that's what Paul had back in mind when he said the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel God's perfect standards as creator and judge is revealed in the faithfulness of Jesus. And we can trust Jesus' faithfulness as a way of meeting God's standards apart from the law. It's from faith, Jesus' faith, to our faith, our faith in Jesus' faithfulness. We live by faith. That is, we, we trust. That's all faith means. We trust in Jesus' faithfulness to declare me right with God. Faith is not blind. It means trusting something that is trustworthy, relying on something that is reliable, depending on someone who is dependable. It's having faith in what is faithful. And God says that Jesus is the one who has this faith and who we can have our faith in because it is his faithfulness alone that will meet God's righteous requirements. So as we read on in verse 22, Halfway through verse 22, it says, For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is those who fall short of God's glory, rightly damned before God, are also the ones who are justified. Also the ones who are declared right by God, who have met God's perfect standards by his grace as a gift. So please let that sink in. No matter who I am, no matter what I've done, no matter what secrets I've kept from other people and sought to keep from God, no matter what I'm enslaved to now, no matter what condemnation hangs over my head, I can be declared right before God as my judge by trusting in the faithfulness of Jesus. I'll be able to look God in the face if I trust the faithfulness of Jesus. It's as if I can throw this, this fishing line all the way into eternity, into God's mouth as it were, and then hook these words and reel it back in and see this word that says, Richard, not guilty. And you can do that too. If you trust in the faithfulness of Jesus. Because he's already said that it is not about my efforts, not through obeying the law, not through religious acts, but somehow it's a free gift. It's by grace. It's undeserved generosity. It's all got to do with what Jesus has done, not what I have done. As we read on, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This means that Though, although which I can you know, freely receive a verdict of not guilty is through redemption. It's a language of the slave market, of buying back a slave at a cost. God offers to buy us back from our slavery to sin and a condemned life under the law. And I need to ask you, do you want that? Are you so enslaved to something or to someone that you know you need freeing from, that only God can buy you back from. Do you want that? Because he's offering that. The redemption through what Jesus has done. How? Verse 24 again, And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, verse 25, as a propitiation. That's a five-syllable word. By his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Right? It's by propitiation. If you've got an NIV, it says a sacrifice of atonement. The word propitiation is the idea of God turning aside the anger of God that we deserved by pouring on Jesus instead of you and me. At all the raging ocean of righteous anger that you and I deserved is just sidelined onto Jesus so that we can have a right relationship with him. It's incredible, isn't it? And he didn't punish you 
and me for our lies or our deceit or our adultery or our malice or our gossip or our greed. No, he stored it all up, the raging ocean of his righteous fury, and in one terrible moment, he turned it loose on his son. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's great news for those of us who live this side of Jesus. But what about those who committed atrocities before Jesus? Like King David himself, he committed adultery. Remember what he did? He slept with Bathsheba and then he organized the murder of her husband Uriah. And then he actually saw Bathsheba pregnant with his own child. He sinned. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against the nation. It's hard to work out who he didn't sin against. How can he get away with it? Well, read it again about those before whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, the now time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, God did not leave their sins unpunished, the sins of King David and the like, because he condoned evil. No, he didn't do that. Or that he was helpless to deal with it. No, no, he was very able to deal with it. Rather, it was God's fixed intention all along that at the right time, he would punish these sins in the death of his son. It was as if God gathered all the stones that should have been hurled at King David and in one terrible moment hurled it all on his son instead of David, instead of you and me. This was the only way in which God could both himself be righteous, actually actually meet his own right and perfect standard himself, and simultaneously be the judge who declares the one who trusts Jesus' faithfulness to also meet those right and perfect standards, to be the justifier and the just. What God did to reveal his righteousness is the gospel of the apostles, the apostolic gospel that we are to declare to all and sundry. Now please note, we've gone through some fat words and some concepts that are well familiar to some but perhaps new to others. But it can just stay out there, kind of academic, can't it? It can just still stay outside of us. You kind of think, yeah, yeah, I get that, propitiation, yeah, there's other five-syllable words, predestination, reconciliation, yeah, I get all those words. But try and let it sink in a little bit more. There's a guy named Johnny Gibson, who is an Irish preacher, who once spoke about a guy named Fabrice Muamba. Hands up if you've heard of Fabrice Muamba. The UK gentleman up the back. <laughs> That's because Fabrice Muamba 
is a soccer midfielder who played for the Bolton Wanderers in the FA Cup, the English Premier League soccer. On the 17th of March, I think two or three years back, 42 minutes into the game against the Tottenham Hotspurs, Fabrice Moamba was basically in the back on his own. He was nowhere near the ball, but he just collapsed. There was no one around him. But it became apparent that he had a massive heart attack. And within minutes, the medics ran onto the field and then other players caught wind of what was going on and so they dropped to their knees. And would you believe some were praying around Fabrice Mwamba on the field? There were 40,000 people in the crowd and apparently they fell silent as they tried to revive him. There was a heart specialist in the crowd and he ran onto the field past the security guards and he managed to somehow get him to an ambulance and take him past another hospital that was closest to his own hospital. But before that happened, apparently, you could hear a pin drop. 40,000 people! And suddenly out of nowhere, you hear this chanting. Fabrice Muamba. Fabrice Muamba. And it just kept getting louder and louder. They, they were willing him to live. He was taken off the field after six minutes. Apparently his heart had stopped beating for 78 minutes. But he survived because of that particular heart specialist. They wanted him to live. Contrast that to when Jesus is hanging on the cross. What did the crowds do to Jesus? They were cheering him on to die. They were mocking him. They were jeering him. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? They were gambling for his clothes. They were spitting on him. Moments earlier, they put a crown of thorns on his head in order to torture him. They were chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Can you imagine 40,000 people on the soccer field watching Fabrice Moamba and mocking him? Can you imagine the players around him just gambling for his jersey? Can you imagine 40,000 people calling out, Die! 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 But that's what they were doing to Jesus. Crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Why didn't someone just come out and say, Stop this? Why do they say, this is, this is ridiculous, this guy's innocent. Even Pilate kind of tried. But what did Jesus do when he was on the cross as people were calling, crucify him? He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the Lord Jesus. And his love.
for you. No matter where you're at, no matter what secrets you are keeping, no matter what you're enslaved to, no matter what your life is being turned around by in turmoil, He is offering you forgiveness. See, it's not just academic. Heaven and hell is at stake for you or for your family or for your friends or for your loved ones. And tonight I want to ask you, have you placed your trust in Jesus alone to save you from God's raging ocean of righteous wrath? You might have come here thinking that you are saved, but knowing deep down inside you're not really. It doesn't matter whether you're a youth group leader. I know someone who's been leading on camps for the last 10 years, but she's only grappling now with the fact that she's probably not a Christian. And that might be you. And if that is you, then tonight, please come before God and confess to Him and ask Him to forgive you so that you can live with Him as your Lord and Savior from this night on. We can ask all sorts of questions, but that's the thing to get right with God. And if that's you, please, please do that tonight. Talk to someone about it. Go off on your own somewhere to pray, but talk to someone about it eventually. But if you have turned back to Jesus, if you have asked him for forgiveness, if he really is your Lord and Savior, then don't waste your life. Start living your life and dying your death, gladly telling others the apostolic gospel. Beginning on our campuses from week one onwards next week. But with a view for the long term to take it to the world, to every village and tribe and language and nation. For this is the apostolic gospel for all the world. But more of that tomorrow night. But where are you with God? If you're going to stay up late tonight, I hope it's because you're dealing with God. Please take the opportunity to talk with one another and confess your sins to him. Looking to Jesus. Joyful in Jesus. Forgiven in Jesus. Let's pray and then we'll sing. 
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the apostolic gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray for those of us who know deep down inside that we are not yours. Please so stir us to confess that to you and to at least one other tonight. And for those of us who do know you, please so grip us like you gripped the Apostle Paul so that to the eyes of the world we may look like mad people. But to your eyes, as people who are declared righteous in Jesus. Keep us all looking to Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And we pray this all for his name's sake. Amen.